0: Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Yeah, uh, good morning. Thank you for agreeing to participate in this drug trial. First, I need you to confirm that your drips are on. Acknowledge. Uh, acknowledge. All right. We'll begin administering verbaloose. Welcome, friends, to episode 232 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss George Saunders' 2010 short story and Joseph Kaczynski's 2022 film, Spiderhead. So when we talked about this uh, at the end of last episode, James, you said you hadn't even watched the trailer. So you were going into this thing completely blind. Um, so I'm really curious to know what you thought it was going to be about and what you got. And also, did you read the story or watch the, th- watch the thing first?
1: Things that I knew, I knew it was a sci-fi story. I knew it was by a writer that you knew and respected. I had no context for what year this came, this story came out, anything like that. I didn't know it came out in the New Yorker, none of that stuff. It was just hearing Spiderhead. Something about this title just made me think of Screamers for some reason. So I was kind of imagining like a weird sci-fi story. Philip K. Dick kind of thing <laughs> but then then I was thinking about it and I was like all right what could spiderhead be is it some sort of what I thought this story was going to be about was like a cyberpunk cybernetically enhanced sort of sci-fi story where people had <laughs> some sort of devices called spiderheads so and did you read the story or watch the movie first? The story was first.
0: Yeah, so we're going to start with the story here, so I think that's appropriate. Uh, we're not going to go super in-depth in, as far as like the summary, because we're going to summarize the movie, and it's pretty similar uh, with major departures more towards the end. And we'll kind of describe the differences, but um, going into this blind,
1: you start reading the story by George Saunders in The New Yorker. Uh, yes. What was
0: your first impression of it?
1: I thought we were getting what was going to be the horniest story we've ever read on the <laughs> Ink to Film podcast. Yeah. <laughs> It starts off, I want to say a good third. The first third is is super, super heavily like wrapped up in the drugs and sex with people and just like describing it in, in detail. Um, and I didn't really get where it was going. And I liked that about the story because it wasn't like erotic detail, though. No, not quite. But it yeah. was like like if you were, say, listening to it on an audio perform, which we I didn't. But if you listen to it on like an audio performance out loud and somebody walked by, you might be like, whoa, whoa OK, let me put my <laughs> headphones in. There were no glistening members. Let's just say that. <laughs> right. Not as bad as uh, Martin sometimes gets. I was taken with the story because I found it to be an interesting angle to take, and I didn't see the commentary being made until around halfway. Like what what the story was sort of having a commentary on with with in reflection of our own society and life. Okay. I guess like what was your what was your take with the prose pr- prose itself, like the writing? Much more modern than I was expecting. Very like uh, conversational. The way that people were speaking was very realistic and contemporary. Yeah. Um, quickly, I, I started to, to warm to it and realize like how complex what he was doing actually was within like the commentaries that are being made about society and and like maybe more working class people versus uh, elites that are you know potentially deciding how we feel and you know think and things like that. Okay. Interesting. Did the writing remind you of anyone we've covered before? Um, maybe a Cormac McCarthy or something like that. Okay. Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I guess it, just in terms of like it being strikingly different from what I what I normally am used to with with authors' prose, I guess.
0: Cormac McCarthy is known for writing dialogue and even his prose being kind of... Uh, Form-breaking. Yeah. And, and, and kind of conversational at times. So I, I guess I could see that. Um, interesting. I'll... I'll describe who he's often compared to when I get to his bio. And I wonder if that'll like light any uh, light bulbs up for you or not. I'm
1: sure it will, yeah. It's hard for me to remember all the stuff we've ever covered. That's
0: fair. Uh, yeah, so this is not my first rodeo with George Saunders. Um, but I'm not, you know, I haven't read like, all of his stuff. He's, he's written a decent bit of stuff. Um, what I've read was Civil Warland and Bad Decline, which was a short story that I covered in... A creative writing class at the University of Florida and that was my first introduction to him as a writer and I liked it so much I wound up picking up his collection *Pastoralia* a little later um, and I read through that entire collection. I haven't read many entire short story collections but that was one of the few that I have and I, I remember really liking the whole thing uh, although in retrospect I... I don't remember a lot of specific stories other than the eponymous Pastoralia. Uh, that one was about these people who were being held in an enclosure, specifically this guy, and he was being paid. It was like a job he had to live full-time in a zoo. And in the zoo, he was portraying a like, Cro-Magnon, like a uh, caveman style. And there was somebody else that he worked with but they weren't allowed to like speak in language and they had to communicate with each other as Cro-Magnons and they would come out and put on a performance and then like uh, like uh, people would come by and watch them and they got graded based off of their performance and it was that story reminds me a lot of this one right I was gonna like, say that like,
1: sounds a lot like similar connective tissue
0: yeah it, it was interesting to see that these two it's like he's talking about some similar phenomenons and both of them he's using to make statements about society, right? Like it's, it's kind of satirical. It's, it's um, kind of dissecting our weird you know, things that we're fascinated with and the things we do to ourselves and the things we do to other people um, and, and in ways that aren't easy to define but are fun to think about and, and you definitely engage with when you read this work. So I went into this with that background, right? Like he's an author that I have read before and really enjoyed. It's been a while. And I checked this thing out. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. It's a pretty quick read. Um, and I, yeah, I was taken with it. It reminded me of Pastorelia. Um, I I felt like it was on its surface, very similar to a lot of genre fiction I read and that it seems to be about sort of an idea, right? Like it started off with this idea of these drug inducing, uh, a drug trial that's inducing different emotions and from there we get to explore some character uh and we get to explore a story and i think saunders does an interesting job of giving us some unexpected twists and then taking it to me at the end especially to a place that feels very literary like the way this story ends which is very different from the movie feels more appropriate for the new yorker than a action sort of psychological thriller um and and so that's an interesting distinction that I'm sure we'll get to as we discuss the ending um and that might be you know a lot of what this hinges on but to focus in on the writing like I I always have been taken with Saunders writing I find it very approachable like you said it's not it's not too highbrow to be off-putting and when you people think about reading literary stuff they often think it's going to be very purple and hard to get into, but that's, you know, very far from the truth. I find Saunders very easy to read. That doesn't take away from the sort of profundity that he is able to convey in his prose. And I think the author that I've heard him compared to, that's something I've found in them as well. Um, and so one example I'll give from early on in what I'm talking about, even just at the start of the book, the uh, main character, Jeff, He's asked to describe this garden he's looking at. And he says, Soon the interior garden looked really nice. Everything seemed super clear. I said out loud, as I was supposed to, what I was feeling. Garden looks nice, I said. Super clear. And that just made me laugh because like normally in writing you don't you don't want to repeat something like that. But it shows to me it does a couple things, right? Like it shows there's a little there's little filter. He's giving us his direct thoughts. We know what point of view we're in. And then Jeff is somebody who's just saying what he's thinking in this moment. Like, you know, this is what I thought. This is what I said. And it's the same thing. And I don't know, there's just something kind of comical about that to me.
1: Well, and not to mention that it's setting up that the the idea of a limitation that you like a a personal limitation that you like exceed when you're given a drug that like has you speak more Yeah, You know, gives you almost a higher vocabulary and and like you you can engage with ideas a little easier or at least describe what you're thinking a little more like to distill it down. Something I'd love to do for the podcast more often is like just really distill down like exactly what you're trying to say. And that drug seems like it can do that. So you're talking about the Verbalus that he then gets administered. Right. So so it's like conveying that like without the Verbalus, this person is sort of Restricted in how that he says super good. It's very and simple. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So so then the verbalist sort of elevates their. Yeah, their vocabulary. And yeah.
0: And, and to me, that's a very fun um writing exercise. Right. Like I, I could I could feel Saunders having a good time with this. Like I'm going to write this character who speaks and thinks simply. And then I'm going to inject him with this drug. And he's going to all of a sudden have all these like profound thoughts and and uh, poetic uh, observations about this same garden. And then it's going to crank it back down. And he's returned to baseline. Um, and not only does that seem like a pretty fun drug, <laughs> like, I don't know. I guess there's like limitless or I haven't even seen that movie, but I imagine limitless is kind of like this. It's like an intelligence boosting drug. Um, I-, I just like, I think writers would love to be able to crank a little verbal loose into ourselves every now and then when we're writing. Cause sometimes it's so hard to like think of a word and think of a phrase. And like you said, like put your thoughts into words and the idea that something could help you do that easier is uh, sort of intoxicating. So I, I like that part of it. And then from there it gets into a lot of this sort of sorted uh, him fucking one person after another, right like it's even described that way. Um, they get this they get this love actin cranked up and they're just at each other. and uh, you know and then it leads to this revelation of this little chart, which I felt was hilarious. We could see an actual picture. In the new yorker story of a little chart of like who who's been with who um as he starts to figure out what's going on um i thought that was all really funny and um kept things moving kept things light he has short sentences he has a lot of paragraph breaks which gives it sort of like a, a faster pacing than you often associate with new yorker style stories yeah, all of that works really well for me. And there's a lot of jokes being made about, like, the names of drugs. Um, I want my wife to uh, read slash watch this movie because she's a pharmacist. And I, I think she would just enjoy some of this pharmacy sort of satire that's going on here. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, it's all about, like, not all about, but it's definitely a commentary on, like, this pharma. Of course, like, the, the movie even more so in some ways is dealing with, like, these pharma people who feel that they can... You know make a ton of money off these things that will really help people out and like they you know that 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 is all kind of wrapped up in this but something that you said also the story starts out more funny and innocent and and it feels fun and interesting and then like slides into that darkness pretty significantly. Like we, we slide into it and it gets more and more serious. And by the end, it didn't feel very fun and tonally. And, you know, I feel like the the weight of what was actually going on was sort of all around us. Yeah. Well, there's absurdity. And absurdity
0: right. often is comical at first, right? But the higher you crank that knob of absurdity... And the implications of what's actually going on. Sometimes it it starts shifting over into darkness. And I think that's what happens in the story. But I mean, on on its premise, the idea that you're just going to crank up two people's chemicals and they're going to automatically start falling in love with each other. They don't just fuck. They fall in love with each other. And then he talks about how the cuddling afterward is just as intense as the lovemaking, right? Like super intense. They're exchanging all these like words of love. And then he dials it back, and they just back off. And like, there's an no, there's an absurdity there, and a to me there's a discomfort there, right? In the sense that that's not really consent. Like you're being you're being you've you've acknowledged the uh, the drip, and you know that something like this could happen, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You don't know the effect it's going to have on you. So it's really more like the illusion of consent. And I felt I felt like they took that. And really ran with it in the movie. And I I guess maybe we should start transitioning into the movie some, but I want to talk about George Saunders first. But I don't want to like go through the entire short story and like what I think the ending means and stuff, because I think it might be more interesting this time to talk about them in comparison, rather than each on their own, which we don't normally do. But I think this time it, it gives me some interesting things to jump around on, so... So, George Saunders was born in 1958. He is an American writer of short stories, essays, novellas, children's books, and novels, and a professor at Syracuse University. He was born in Amarillo, Texas, and raised in Oak Forest, Illinois. He has a degree in geophysics from the Colorado School of Mines, and has worked as a geophysical prospector in Indonesia, a roofer in Chicago, a doorman in Beverly Hills, and a technical writer in Rochester, New York. And, as I said before, he has taught since 1997 in the creative writing program at Syracuse University. Back in the day, I applied to Syracuse University when I was trying to get into grad school. Uh, Nice. uh, When I still thought I was going to pursue literary writing as, like, my main form of writing. Didn't get in. (laughs) That's okay, though. I wasn't writing, in retrospect. Um, So, his writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney's, and GQ, Saunders has won numerous awards, including the National Magazine Award four times for his fiction, a World Fantasy Award, the Penn Malamud Award, the Story Prize for a Short Story Collection, and the inaugural Folio Prize. His novel, Lincoln in the Bardo* won the 2017 Man Booker Prize and was a New York Times bestseller. So I remember when Lincoln and the Bardo came out, a lot of people raving about that book. And, and honestly, I would love to read that one. So I'm kind of hoping it gets made into an adaptation since most of my reading revolves around the podcast these days. <laughs> but uh, maybe I'll find a way to read that one outside of it because I do really like his stuff. In 2013, Saunders was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time magazine. You know, he's considered a big deal, right? Like he's, he's this literary writer who's a professor at a university and yet he's getting these uh these fellowship He got a 500,000 MacArthur fellowship and another fellowship the Guggenheim fellowship um, so a lot of these are you know very prestigious kind of things right and you know named one of the 100 most influential people in the world that's pretty incredible um his audiobook for Lincoln in the Bardo featured a cast of 166 actors and was the 2018 audio award for best audiobook
1: I wonder if he had any involvement in in that process, you know, deciding on people and performances, things like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's
0: a big enough author to where I could see him being involved in stuff like that. But, you know, I can also see him just delegating it and saying, you know, that's not my expertise. Make make something good. (laughs) Sign on with people who know what they're doing, you know, kind of thing. So, uh, Saunders' fiction often focuses on the absurdity of consumerism, corporate culture, and the role of mass media. While many reviewers mention his writing's satirical tone, his work also raises moral and philosophical questions. The tragicomic element of his writing has earned Saunders' comparisons to Kurt Vonnegut, whose work Mm. has inspired him. I can see that. Yeah, that's that's where I was uh, getting, that's what I was alluding to earlier. I can definitely see a Kurt Vonnegut influence in his writing. Um, and I do, I guess if you, I've read enough of his stuff to know that that sort of blend of, you know, that tragic comic blend, as they described, it's happy. It's like a funny, sad uh, combo. And and uh, Kurt Vonnegut loves to write funny, sad stuff. And so does George Saunders.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that now that you say it.
0: So uh, as far as adaptations go, the film rights for Civil Warland and Bad Decline was purchased by Ben Stiller in the late 1990s. But as of 2007, the future project was still in development, uh, but I don't, it doesn't seem like there's been any more news about it. So who knows? And then Saunders has also written a feature length screenplay based on his short story Sea Oak. So we may at some point see that one. But then, yeah, I guess this Spiderhead came out of nowhere. I didn't do a lot of research into the into that, which I assume maybe you'll be able to talk a little bit more about how this film came to be. That's what I found for George Saunders, you know, pretty influential guy, still working, uh someone whose writing I really admire. Um and yeah, not much more to say other than people should read George Saunders cuz he's he's great.
1: Yeah, I really I really enjoyed the story and and like you said it was it was light, it was easy to read in a way that you know, I think some of the time with may- maybe something like I'm thinking of ending things or or you know, Ian Reed's work that may have appeared in the the New Yorker like would be it's It's like you a lot, it's very dense to to sort of wrap your head around some of the concepts that he's going on tangents with. Maybe I don't know I don't know enough about Ian Reid to like
0: level that at him, but there are writers like that for sure right. um, that you could see and, and he's very different than that, right? Um, although people who like maybe read The New Yorker a ton or work at The New Yorker or what have you would probably might bristle at our characterization. Um, so again, the caveat of I don't read The New Yorker consistently, so I actually don't know for sure. It's more just about reputation. That's what we're talking about.
1: Right. And I, I and it's not a something a, in a situation where I would even like turn my nose up to it either. Like I would, you know, I'd love to read more of that kind of stuff. So it's interesting
0: that you said that you knew this was a sci-fi story. And I guess it kind of is. But again, we've run into the situation of genre versus literary because Saunders is definitely a, a you know a literary writer. Yet he's won a World Fantasy Award, um, and there is that overlap between genre and literary, which is a genre,
1: but a lot of people consider it not one. Um, right. It's almost as if these genres are made up and don't really qualify everything, you know, (laughs) like nothing can be contained within every single genre.
0: So it sounds like you don't want to uh, talk about the distinction here. <laughs> we can't. No, no,
1: no, we can't. I, I just think it's funny. It turns into this often.
0: How did you feel about whether or not this was a genre piece? Did it feel like a sci-fi story to you or did it feel like something else?
1: I was very comfortable feeling like it was a sci-fi yeah. piece that was literary.
0: Okay, that's fair. Me too, basically. So <laughs> I'm with you. Um, all right. So let's move maybe into the movie and then we can kind of start to compare both. And do you do you want to start off by telling me about the like, history of the film and the filmmaker? Because I didn't recognize the name, but maybe I should.
1: Yeah, you kind of should right now, especially. Um, so having a big year, it, uh, Joseph Kaczynski is um, to start it off. I had heard the name before and in, in doing the research, I didn't realize that I saw another of his films earlier in the week. So I watched this film actually the same day that I saw another Joseph Kaczynski film. Do you want to do you want to guess what film he directed recently? I have no idea. Top Gun Maverick, really? Yes.
0: Oh, everybody's raving about that movie.
1: I saw it the day, the same day I watched Spiderhead. Didn't realize until I started doing my research that they were both directed by the same person.
0: Wow. Now I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something, and you can tell me if I'm completely wrong. But like this movie, to me, feels like it was made during COVID. This feels like a COVID
1: movie. You are correct, okay. and I, I totally agree with you. While I watched it. I felt the same way. I was,
0: there was like never more than like three or four people it seemed like in the same room. And even in, in the, when they were, they were in like a very wide shot where they're very spread out. So it felt like they were trying to make a movie as safely as possible, probably not with as many people around as possible.
1: Principal photography was November of 2020 yeah. in Queensland, Australia. And from what I can understand, it was like a big push for the area to kind of create jobs and keep people working. And so it was, a, it was like, you know, a film that they could make feasibly for, like, not a huge budget. I think the Australian government, like, invested $21 million or something like that in this movie and another movie that were kind of filming simultaneously during COVID, again, to create those jobs and to get the local economy, like, somewhat, in somewhat tack. Yeah, November 2020 was also, like, before the,
0: before the vaccines... But I think uh, Australia's case numbers were lower, if I'm remembering, at the time. I think
1: they... The, well, New Zealand, I know for sure, was very closed off and yeah. still is, maybe, even. Yeah, but I don't know Australia, I'm not sure if they were able to isolate as much. This is the same kind of thing that Tom Cruise, to tie Tom Cruise to Kaczynski, who we're talking about here with Top Gun and everything, when you've... I'm sure you've probably seen the video of, of Tom Cruise like freaking out on a crew member who was breaking COVID protocols because they were filming like in the height of COVID. And it was like about keeping the industry going and showing and leading leading the way and showing like the the steps that you can take to prevent the spread and and like the, the idea that you could continue working I've, responsibly and like, I've heard of this video, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. And, and to, you know, to, to Tom Cruise's credit, I agree with him. Like you should have fucking if you're filming in the middle of COVID and and our industry has continued to still wear masks on set, still have mandatory vaccinations and also testing. So, you know, I, I think like to to sort of lead the way like that, um, to show that that it is it was possible, and, and to be like daily testing and things like that to make sure that, the, that no one was spreading it on set. I don't know. Interesting to think about this film being being created in the middle of co- yeah. COVID.
0: I wonder if that went into the selection of this movie because it, it's like does does someone have does just jo- you know Joseph Kaczynski or his team have like a a, a a stack of screenplays that they're considering and he's looking through it and going you know that one that's based on that Saunders story it seems like it would be able to be done in a way that wouldn't require a lot of people together in the same room. And is that a, one of the reasons why this gets pulled off the stack?
1: Yeah, 100%. I think that that was, we were seeing that happen ac- across the board in Hollywood and with a lot of projects like this. Um, because I, I am surprised that it was this story, like uh, this story is good, but like Civil Warland
0: and Bad Decline, in my opinion, would be a better movie, I think. Um, yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I've read that story, but like, um, and it's not to say this movie was bad. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, like, it, it or Lincoln in the Bardo Like, I, I haven't read Lincoln in the Bardot, but people rave about it. So I'm wondering, if, like, could that be making it into a great movie? It's just surprising to me that this is the story, right? That's, like, seems like the first film adaptation we've had of a Saunders thing. And yeah. uh, it's kind of interesting that it, it, it may be a COVID reasons went into choosing it.
1: <laughs> I think the COVID reasons are definitely why it proceeded. Because I I was reading that. A film adaptation was announced in 2019 with Kaczynski set to direct. So maybe it changed form into what could be filmed in a COVID environment. And like you know, I wonder if they they probably had to do
0: some rewrites then if they already had some ideas about what they wanted. And then they then all of a sudden COVID happens and they're like, well, we're still going to do it, but it's going to be maybe a little different now.
1: Well, I'm sure that that they did change some things because of that, because it was February 2019 when it was announced. And then in 2020, Chris Hemsworth, Miles Teller, and uh, Journey Smollett all joined the cast. And then they filmed two months later.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I'd love to like actually ask some of them about this because there's got to be some interesting stories behind all of it. Maybe it's not public knowledge, though.
1: Right, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Joseph Kosinski. Like I said, having quite a moment right now, just with and then the the connective tissue of Miles Teller being in both projects, and and then he also has he he sort of you can draw his directorial efforts back to Tom Cruise as well. So I'll I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Joseph Kosinski is an American filmmaker best known for his computer graphics and computer generated imagery work, and for his work in action films. He made his big screen directorial debut with a 2010 science fiction film Tron Legacy, sequel to the 1982 film Tron. Oh, I have seen that one. I, I like that movie a lot. I haven't seen it in a long time, yeah. but visually and the Daft Punk like did the score for yeah. it and everything. Listen to that score all the time.
0: Yeah, good score. I would say I liked that movie, but I would need to see it again to really know how. But I just I didn't feel a desire to see it again, which kind of tells me something. I don't know. I thought it was okay. Right.
1: Had some good visuals and like, you know, he's known for his CG work, so that's probably notable um i would like to see it again as well i remember feeling like i wish there was more from and i know there was going to be another that he was attached to but it was um sort of canceled by disney in 2016 mm. i believe
0: yeah because that, that movie didn't quite do as well as they were hoping right
1: right and that's that's one of the major things too is it like didn't quite cross the threshold to where it made a ton of money like felt like it could have been the next big thing and it, they put enough money into it where it should have been but it just you know things didn't work out that way So his previous work has primarily been with CGI-related television commercials, including the Starry Night commercial for Halo 3 and the award-winning Mad World commercial for Gears of War. He also directed Oblivion, if you saw Oblivion with Tom Cruise. I did see that. I like
0: that movie, actually. And that reminds me a lot of this movie. I was going to say, both of them feel like, this film especially, like it's this um, high-concept sci-fi story that is all about exploring a concept. Right. And... More so to me in the movie than in the story. Like, that's the focus. And uh, Oblivion was that very much. And and I enjoy those kind of movies, and I enjoyed Oblivion for what it was.
1: Yeah, so did I. And, and again, that's that Tom Cruise connection. They'd worked together in 2013, so clearly him coming back for Top Gun Maverick. This year was, was uh, you know, a good connection. And then...
0: I'm thinking about Oblivion and I'm like, that movie seems like the kind of thing that was filmed entirely on a virtual stage. Is that, Was it? <laughs> do you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> no,
1: that was way... That was too early for the technology. Yeah. You could today probably do that though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Only the Brave is another film he directed in 2017. that had Miles Teller in it. Was that it the, um,
0: f- like a firefighting film or something? I didn't see it, but I, I think I saw a trailer.
1: Yes, it is. It's about firefighters. I haven't seen it either, but Josh Brolin's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think Jeff Bridges is in it. Is in it. So... You know, he's worked with some some notable people. Most of his films have sort of been, like, good enough for him to continue making films, but none have been, like, massive successes up until Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, which is blowing up. Part of me wonders if it has the sort of Tom Cruise effect of... But it's the highest grossing film of his career. I, what I'm trying to say is specifically Tom Cruise is like heavily involved in the production of, of Top Gun because he's like a producer and you know how much say he has on that film. So, you know, maybe a mixture of the two of them figured it out.
0: Yeah, and, and like part of that is also his, his stardom and the fame of Top Gun has just grown over the years, I feel like. It's one of those movies that, I don't know... I guess you could, you could claim similar thing about other movies, though, where sequels didn't do as well. So it is kind of an interesting um, thing that, that, that Top Gun is doing so well. But I hear that, I hear that the movie's good, and that helps. I, you know, I think that helps word of mouth.
1: It's great, man. I mean, I, I think in terms of a big like 80s nostalgia going into this like fun action film and the way that they did it practically, you know, Tom Cruise's is about this stuff now. Yeah. And obviously, like I don't love the the guy as a person, you know, off screen and everything. He's got some shady stuff going on and his connections with Scientology have always been weird. But he he consistently just like is a movie star and, and continues oh, to be the kind of p- person that's propping up the uh the film industry in some ways with with some of these projects and and i i think i can clearly see i was thinking about this recently i can clearly see, see him sort of transitioning from this action icon and and sort of just acting icon he's worked with the likes of kubrick and you think of all the people he's worked with he's got some legit acting chops i think sometimes people don't give him credit for that and I think he's going to transition similar to like a Clint Eastwood, where Clint Eastwood then turns to directing. And I can definitely see Tom Cruise going down that path, especially this is his involvement with these the Top Gun film and the recent Mission Impossible. I mean, he has to
0: start aging at some point for that to happen. Right now, it seems like he's just going to stay at about forty for the rest of his
1: life. It's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. He's he's yeah, he's sixty, and I was surprised <laughs> to, to look at that the other day. So. Unreal. So I'd love to hear your general thoughts on the movie. You know, things were changed. It's a short story being adapted into a feature length film. So some some things need to be added. But did you feel like the, the film captured the tone? Did you think they deliberately didn't try to copy uh, Saunders tone or or like his sort of messaging and did their own thing? What, what Where did the movie leave you?
0: So to me, the movie, as I alluded to earlier, like it, it is an exploration of the idea at the heart of the premise right of this of this drug trial to a bunch of prisoners and i think this illusion of uh, consent is also at the heart of everything right that it felt like it kept coming back to that over and over again
1: you're talking about the illusion of consent, and I I just wanted to like maybe break it out and talk about it a l- wider and just think about the illusion of choice also yeah, yeah. within our society, right? Like not just like consenting to something, but also like the the idea that we are actually able to make choices, and it's not some sort of thing predetermined thing that's already been you know set in stone, basically. Yeah, I
0: mean it's about free will ultimately, right? Um, it, well, and and you can also look at you you take it a step out and like our brains are in a way all chris hemsworth's in there administering these chemicals to us right like they're cranking up different chemicals in our minds and in many ways that controls the things we do um so so it is kind of a larger look at yeah like where does choice reside is it a real thing at all or are we all sort of just puppets of chemistry brain chemistry
1: And then to take it even further than that, the sort of more on the nose look at it is someone in power is creating the illusion that we have choice even though we're in this prison. Sort of thing, like the you know capitalism or wh- however you want to take that, and just manipulations of
0: people, right? Like making making things seem like the better choice when like clearly it's not. <laughs> like you know, like oh yeah, you definitely want this thing, not not general uh, prison. So instead, you're gonna agree to this, and then the whole time I'm gonna like lord that over
1: you. Like you've agreed to be here. Like you're, you're this is a privilege. I'm gonna make a reference that you're gonna appreciate. Um, there's a Bo Burnham song from Inside where it's called That's How the World Works. Uh And I think we just listened to it together when we saw each other. Right, Um, on vinyl. And (laughs) there's the part with Socko, right? The puppet. And this idea of this is how the world works is like, you know, these systems of oppression have sort of been set up for us at this point. And like, if you were to try to lash out at it, you get the stick. Yeah. And and then that you sort of fall back in the line. And I felt a lot of that with this film too, is like, um, you know, the, the Chris Hemsworth character is like, you know, th- we have no locks on the doors. We have none of this yeah. and that. And then this idea of like, go ahead and do everything. You're so free to do whatever you want. But then he also has that stick ready to put you back in line. Like that sort of Sako. It's all yeah, an illusion, illusion, right? You're free.
0: Yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can walk wherever you want. Like, and, and don't, but don't, don't mess it up or I'll have to bring locks back. Right? Like it's all, you know, free to a point and then there's a threat. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's all rich satire. And I think it, it's present in the story. They do a good job of bringing it to life in this movie. Um, and then the story progresses, and it becomes all about escaping Spiderhead and sort of trying to bring down Steve. Uh, the uh, you know that's a uh, Chris Hemsworth character's name, his first name. That keeps trying to get people to call him by, um, and, which I thought like is is an interesting sort of character trait, right?
1: It also was was a way of him saying like call me Steve because if people keep remembering my name is Ab- Abnasty, then he then if they see the name of the company they'll know it's his company. Maybe
0: I think it's also like wanting to be on a first name basis and and like he doesn't want people thinking about how in control of everything he is. He wants everyone to think that they're friends, they're pals, that they're just you know hanging out, that he's not ultimately in control of everything, which he clearly is. Um, so I thought that there was a chance that this movie was going to take this premise and like go a few steps further with it and, um, start peeling back layers because like the level of control that is being demonstrated could get really dark. Um, if you start, if you start extrapolating out like what that could mean. Um, but they didn't really go that route. And in fact, it, this, the plot stayed pretty similar. We get an addition of like a love uh, uh, an outside love uh, situation between uh, Jeff and um, Journey Smollett's character, who's I think Rachel? Lizzie. I think oh, they call, they, cha- they call her Lizzie. They, some of these names, they kind of changed it up between story and, and movie, and since I read and watched these back-to-back, I might confuse them. Um, but despite the additional things uh, and, and uh, like the uh, the changing of Jeff's backstory, that kind of stuff, like, ultimately, it's mostly the same until the end.
1: Right. I mean, there's definitely some added, some padding going on. We get some of the backstory a, a little more flushed out. Um, it's left to be a mystery for for a little while. We learn a little bit more about Mark
0: um, and his misgivings he has about, although not a lot more.
1: And I think we get a little uh, a deeper look into Steve or Abnesty as well. Yeah, definitely. He's kind of playing this,
0: like, pharma bro guy. And I do like that right. there was an attempt to give him a little bit of depth. Um He has a bit of that, like, also, like, tech bro startup feel. For sure. Like, just move fast and break things and then worry about shit later kind of of feel. Um, So I can see a character like this, absolutely. But um, I was a little underwhelmed, ultimately, with Hemsworth's performance of this character. Like, I like Hemsworth. I think he does certain kinds of characters really well. This, to me... (sighs) Especially when he was trying to play the, the moments where he was being hit with all these different drugs and he was supposed to be kind of unhinged and like going between extreme emotions. Um, it just got a little muddled to me and I couldn't quite tell what was going on and what he was trying to portray. And it, this feels like the kind of role where you could have a, someone who can play unhinged really well, really shine. And I just don't think unhinged is a thing that Hemsworth is particularly good at. I can see wanting to try it. So I can totally understand him taking a role like this. But I just don't know that that is kind of his cup of tea, I guess. Is that fair? I don't know.
1: I don't know. I can see it. Like... I also feel like it, it could be decisions being made between the director and himself as as the actor saying like, what's the tone of the film? Where do we want it to go? Because the the to me, and I know that George Saunders story is like that satirical, dark satirical. To me, this film was getting really, really dark. And then the last, like the final act, the conflict at the end, and then leading through to the end, there's like music playing and it feels like it wants to be yeah. like a Guardians of the Galaxy movie where it's like, the pop music playing and they're punching and they're fighting their way out of it and to me that tonally maybe was where Hemsworth was was trying to shoot for as well like taking big chances and and like saying like the director saying like trust me we're gonna we're gonna make it good in the edit and it's just this he's he's going pretty wild with it and I think uh Miles Teller and Journey Smollett do good in their roles as well because they have to do they have to play all of these as well um but but I I agree I don't think that Hemsworth fit the role like I think maybe Miles Teller fit Jeff or Journey Smiley fit yeah. Lizzie. I think both of them were, yeah, I'd, I'd rate their performances higher.
0: I mean, Chris Hemsworth at times was good. And I think there was like, I think for the he's most got part, this he was charisma. Good. I bought him as like wanting everyone to love him. I was so convinced at some point we were going to get a reveal that he was going to be laying on his back and taking that because he's taking he's dosing himself with that love actin. And I thought for sure we were going to pull out the second time he did it and he, we were going to see a mirror on the ceiling or something. Because I felt like he was trying to love himself. I think he's like searching for the love that he didn't get from his father and um, he seems so full of himself all the time. I could see him as somebody who's dosing himself with this love drug to make him even more narcissistic. Because I was getting narcissism um, obviously a little like a b- bit of a psychopath and that he doesn't seem to truly care about people. It's more about the way that they can serve his ambition and the thing that he truly loves, which is this whole uh, trial, which he reveals later on.
1: Well, I think we should jump into the plot here. So I'm gonna read the first bit here. Spiderhead is a state-of-the-art penitentiary experimenting with the effects of research chemicals. The test subjects are volunteers for the project aiming to reduce their sentence time. The program is overseen by the sympathetic and hospitable Steve Abnesti, along with his assistant, Mark. The prisoners have their own rooms, do chores, and are free to roam without guard supervision. The subjects go through daily test runs of various drugs, all of which alter their emotions and their perceptions of their surroundings. Inmate Jeff, still reeling from having killed his friend and whilst drunk driving, is given N40, a love drug, which distorts his senses and drives him to have sex with two of his fellow inmates. Steve asks him to choose which one of them to give Darkenflox, a drug that induces intense physical and psychological pain. He declines to choose, claiming he feels nothing in particular for either one of them after the effects of the love drug have worn off. That's where we start getting
0: into the ideas of consent and, like, what is even possible with this drug. And it seems to be very powerful. Um, They change it a little bit, though. In the story, he feels neutral about both women at baseline, and he is given the same amount of dosage each time. They change it up here, and they have... um, which almost like tips it in the favor of Heather in in a way. So they set Heather up, you know, she's an attract, conventionally attractive woman and, uh, they have sex and, uh, and then, and they even like have a little bit of a flirty moment before it begins. She's like, I'm a bitch. And he's like, Oh, well let me change my answer then. And he ups it to an eight, which I felt was like kind of flirty. So they're kind of establishing like maybe a little bit of like an attraction here from the jump. Um, and then they have sex and then the next day, he does it again. And this is just like the story, except for he does it like three times in the same day. But um, in the in the movie, he has sex with this other woman who, you know, very different looks. And they have to give him twice the dosage, I think, uh, for it to be as effective, equally as effective. So why do you think they I changed I wasn't
1: clear that? if it was... I wasn't clear if it was equally as effective, or if they were seeing because their their lovemaking or their sex seemed to be even crazier, yeah. Like way crazier. So it was like, did it amp it up in some way? Well, it, or but like,
0: but like he couldn't choose between them later, so I think the result was still back to baseline
1: normal. So yeah, I don't know why they changed it. Maybe just to give it like they wanted like a comedic flair to it, or they wanted like which you know I. I wasn't really into it you know I felt like it was better off left as it was yeah
0: I, I, I'm not like super upset about it or anything but you know, it was just kind of a weird change like because it, it also fucks a little bit with the science of it right like that there's too many variables at a certain point and you right you do have that. to
1: have like one variable change. exactly <laughs> so just up the dosage yeah
0: yeah you want to have the same dosage to compare the thing when it comes time for him to make
1: the decision otherwise what is the point of the you know result of the test Anyway, <laughs> uh, what did you think about that? Uh, the like drunk driving, like all of that stuff that was added for his character. So it's a little confusing. Like uh, he is remembering this event happen
0: and he doesn't remember.
1: I think he does, but he's he's lying to himself. He's
0: lying to himself and to us. Um, and, and the first time we get the flashback, his girlfriend is not in the car. And then the second time we get the flashback, she is. And the first time we get the flashback, it's just him and, and this other guy. And um, he, you know, in a fairly magical sequence of events, gets ejected from the car and somehow isn't dead. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I suppose this thing has probably happened before. I think I've read about it. Um, it seems absolutely bonkers to me that anyone could ever survive something like that. Um, much less run around like he was um, afterward. But, uh, you know, he's, he's also in a movie. So, OK. But this is all very different than the story, by the way. We should say in the story, he gets in a fight with somebody. And ends up killing him with a brick. And he even says, like, he doesn't know why he was young when it happened. And he said it felt like his rage just like took over him as if he had gotten some sort of injection right. of chemicals. Exactly. Which is a,
1: a, an interesting idea about chemicals in our brains and that kind of stuff already bring brought up in the story.
0: Yeah. Whereas this is this is an accidental killing because he's drunk driving, which, by the way, this is just a kind of a pet peeve of mine. In movies, they love if they're going to show somebody drunk driving. I feel like they have to show the character actively drinking while driving, which which <laughs> yeah. is a little bit like I don't know, like it's it's like you have a chance to show that drunk driving is dangerous just based off of people who are drunk at a party and then leave and and it can still be dangerous. And instead. They do something that makes it to where like anybody would agree this is bad, which is like you're actively chugging beer while speeding behind the vehicle of a sports car. It's like, yeah, that's clearly bad.
1: (laughs) Right. But it's all bad. Don't drink and drive. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's dangerous
0: enough as is. You don't need to do that. But okay, Anyway.
1: Right. I feel like there was like 30 to 45 minutes of this movie that could have been sped up. Yeah. He goes to the island and like goes up on top of the rock to make phone calls and stuff. Like uh, some of these things that were added.
0: I'm like, why is he on top of this giant mountain? Like that had to have taken him an hour or more to climb just to make this call to a number that apparently he knows is to his dead girlfriend.
1: Right. And that's like a fake out on the audience again. And I'm not huge on those kinds of fake outs. Like they did it with the car thing as well. Well, that was Um, that was kind of my why I said it was kind of confusing. Right.
0: Because we are shown a flashback in which she is not present. And then we're shown the same flashback later and she's there. But there's no explanation given like you're extrapolating out that he's lying to himself. That's not actually said.
1: It's like a, it's like a the, we, we can't even trust the narrator of the director is yeah. usually I'd rather trust the trust the director and trust the story that they're telling us because unless they have an unreliable like unless our main character is unreliable which I guess they're trying to portray. In this. But he's
0: not anywhere else like so if. It, it, he needed to at least say something about I've been lying to myself. I've been replaying that night over and over again in my head and j- trying to imagine that she wasn't in the car. Then that explains the flashback.
1: But we don't get we that. do kind of get that get, between him and Lizzie, and, and I think that's that was their 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 reason of doing. that. I guess, it like that. but they and don't. Like he doesn't he, specifically say that. Right. He we flash out and see the flashback while he's explaining it to her. Yeah. Um. So and then the other thing is. The idea of what they've taken from the short story and into what Hemsworth's motivated – Hemsworth, but uh Abnesty, Steve, Abnesty, Steve Abnesty, yeah. His motivations for this are he wants to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, his motives seem so weird and, and like nonsensical to me yeah. in a way because – and I, and I get that it was all a ploy because they wanted this B6 whatever drug to be the real thing to make people compliant,
0: which is added for the an added thing for the movie um, a little bit because and it's interesting because it's like that seems clearly bad, right? Like completely dominating and controlling people's free will, making it so they have no choice but to be compliant. again, everyone can agree that's bad. What I'm more interested in is, all these other drugs. There's there's also fewer drugs in the movie. I don't know if you noticed that. They, they omitted like two or three that were in the story at least. Um, like we had – well, the, although I, I don't know if that phobia one was in the story. So they may have also added one. But um, in the story there was also one about like telling the truth. There was one um, – I think there was the, the one where you found everything funny. Um, oh, there was something called like stiff something that he he talks about how he must have had that so that he could have sex that many times. So there's just like a bunch of more drugs in
1: his like little, uh, pack on his back. Um, so, but his, his idea, the reason he's the the way that he's like pitching this to everybody is that it's going to have all these applications throughout the world. And I, I was never sold on like why other people would be invested in, in his like why other people would jump on board with him because it didn't seem viable. Like it didn't seem like there would be interest in it to that extreme? I don't know. Some, something about Oh, it, I like... think
0: there'd be a lot of interest in it. Um, <laughs> this reminds me of, like, I, I recently listened to, like, a, a podcast series about um, the history of MKUltra and how a lot of that real project was about exploring the possibility of mind control. And a lot of it was through chemicals. So this is very MKUltra-y to me. And a lot of these, and a lot of the testing was done on people who didn't have consent and were unable to provide consent. And it, it also tends to be on people like prisoners. So there's also like more you could, you could take with this story and talk about like the prison state, right. And talk about how we are making money off of our prisoners in this country and in other countries and like how fucked up that all is. And, and that is at the core of this story as well. Like these people all feel like they deserve it. And then we're taking advantage of that in order to do testing on them and how fucked up that is. Um, I don't know. Like it, it, I feel like a lot of that was present in the story and it's present in the movie, but then the, the focus on that aspect of it is shifted over to this focus on sort of a bond villain esque reveal for this Steve Abnesty guy, who's just like a shitty guy at the, who's
1: a CEO who wants to like dominate the world, I don't know, right. like he- that. That and again, to get back to Hemsworth's performance, it was it was at the turn that I think he lost the thread. I think that like I liked his performance up to the point that he he had the turn.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And again, like I felt like there was a couple of reveals I was looking for. Like, what were they getting at with him dosing himself? Like he's having the guy,
1: he's having Mark administer the dosing. Jeff walks in on him. My my perspective on it is sort of like the Elon Musk thing, right? So it's like he he is in power at this big company, but he's a loose cannon. And so like he's also taking the drug. He's also but what? what is he taking? I wanted to know, like, I,
0: I know he's doing love acting later. I know he's got his own thing, but like, what is, what is he taking in this moment? Wasn't he taking, or he at least was being like restocked with something, right? And was it just more Love Actin, or, or yeah, I Love Actin, or the good ones? Yeah, probably. I mean, more stuff years. happened to him later. Like he had Dark Flux and stuff in there, which I thought was a little weird. He swapped. In. They
1: they made the point that Mark. Oh yeah, yeah you're yeah, right. Mark, Mark swapped, swapped him them. in
0: because because oh, like, normally he wouldn't have that in
1: there. Okay, that makes sense.
0: You're right. I, I even caught that at the time, but.
1: The next day, Steve tells Jeff that the higher-ups have chosen the younger of the two women, Heather, will be dosed with Darkenflox, though it will only last five minutes. Jeff reluctantly agrees, and to his horror, Heather commits suicide while on the Darkenflox after she damages her Moby Pack, the device that administers the drugs. As Steve rushes out of the projection room, he drops his keys. Jeff unlocks Steve's desk compartment, discovering that there are no higher-ups. The prison is run by Amnesty Pharmaceuticals. The drugs were named from a bingo card. Jeff confesses to Lizzie, an inmate he is close with, that he not only killed his friend in the car accident, but his girlfriend as well. Lizzie hugs him and they kiss. Steve notices Jeff's feelings for Lizzie. Mark becomes doubtful of Steve's motives and he breaks down when Jeff confronts him.
0: This Dark and Flux thing is interesting, right? Um, in the story, the they administer the Dark and Flux and they don't expect the reaction to be as intense as it is. And she winds up killing herself before they can stop her in the movie. They administer it and she smashes her back against the wall, accidentally releasing more of the drug than they intended. And she ends up killing herself because of it in the movie. It's more of an accident in the story. It's muddier because it's considered an accident because they didn't, they didn't necessarily intend for it to happen. But they're also like, oh, that's weird that that happened. Well, that's science for you. So it's almost like darker in a sense in the or it like it, it makes them more culpable in the story. It felt like to me where there is kind of a decision here to remove a little bit or, or just shift a little bit of that culpability. I kept thinking about how fun this story would be to try and adapt. And because it felt like there is more story going on. I don't know if you were getting that feeling like there's more story to be told in this facility with these characters get delving into a little bit of the psychology of some of these side characters who we just don't have the time to get into or the the focus of the story doesn't delve into them. I, I think I, I want a movie like this to explore that and it does, but I just I guess I don't know that it totally works for me. Which gets me back around to like how I feel like I like this movie. Like I had fun watching this movie. I would recommend. People should check it out. But there's a few things that hold it back from being like a great movie. And I think that was like some of the expectation I had from the story going into it. Some of the uh changes, uh were take something that was really satirical and humorous. And kind of make it a little more accessible and action movie towards the end.
1: Well, and ultimately happier too. That was the that's the main one of the main things is like this the short story doesn't necessarily and it ends like a short story might. like it, it leaves you with like a, a gut punch in a way. And then this film sort of has that weird, uh they escape and maybe they'll be happy forever now and yeah maybe
0: you should get into that final paragraph so we can talk about the ending
1: yeah i just wanted to talk about one other thing which is the 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 reveal of the higher-ups not actually like this idea of playing with people's emotions and saying like you know so that he can remain the good guy he's saying you know i'm really sorry you know the boss is is really they're you know they're driving it home i got i gotta do exactly what they're saying sorry about this and that manipulation that, that, like, comes about from that, um, yeah, the good guy, I, I, there's just a lot being said there with, like, a good guy persona hidden behind pure manipulation.
0: Yeah. And that, that reminds me of, I kept expecting them to go, like, another step further with that reveal and the thing that i kept thinking we were going to get is so so the, the mark says i keep thinking about what jeff said about forgetting and how wanting a drug to forget and then he kept saying yeah go back to the mainland do whatever you need to do for, to forget and i thought maybe there was going to be a reveal that there was a drug to forget and that that was being tested because nobody knew what time of like year it was and it seemed like maybe even some of the stuff that was going on outside the facility was like a dream. So I didn't know how far we were going to go down the rabbit hole of like how much of this stuff could be drug-induced, could be hallucinations. Is he drugging Mark? Um, you know what I mean? To like make him think that he is, uh, you know, like a a, a a co-scientist and like maybe he's actually an inmate himself. Like I didn't know, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of possibility did the people who are feeling guilty over past transgressions even commit those transgressions? I could see a reveal that that was a suggestion delivered during some sort of drug inducement where you're more likely to believe things. And maybe they were even told you killed your ex-girlfriend in a drunk driving accident. And they were able to like form a false memory. Like there's a lot of stuff that's like theoretically possible with drugs that are this powerful. Um, and I kept expecting that like, because we had more time in the movie, we were going to go down a rabbit hole of like really kind of mind fucking shit. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that this and this and this are all drug. And like, it was all going to come back to Hemsworth, uh, Steve at like the head of it all. And he's actually manipulating everybody in like a supremely fucked up way. And it's just it, it stays shy of that. It doesn't go down that road.
1: Yeah. How crazy would it have been if like you you realize that like the relationship that Jeff and Lizzie are building with each other has actually been like chemically induced as well. Like that. Kind exactly. Of like He could have been in control of everything, you know, yeah. like, I don't know.
0: It's, it's 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 I was kind of surprised they didn't do more of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that like that's sort of what the film what holds back the film for me as well is that it it had really fun premise that they explored well enough through like half of a film. Like I said, I felt like there was some that could have been cut out as well. It felt like padding, but then there was, there was a a point at which they hit, I think around the time that, that Heather kills herself. Um, that was like that was probably one of some of my favorite stuff in the film, like when we were getting into that, and then it sort of loses the the intensity and and gets like a lo- loss along the way. I there. did like
0: how guilty he felt about the complicity he had in Heather dying and how he compared that to the complicity he had directly, uh, more directly in, in driving and and getting his girlfriend killed. Like it felt like he had killed again. And yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah, this th- we should get into the end here because I, I we got to talk about how the, the end of the end of the story is, is much. Different. OK,
0: before we get to that, a couple of shout outs to some Easter eggs. Uh, so there is uh, a pretty obvious Easter egg in the film where um, one of the characters, the big guy with all the tattoos is reading a George Saunders book um, in the main uh, uh, cafeteria. I have decided I'm just a sucker for this. Like, it's such an obvious thing to do, to have a character reading a book with the name of the author on it. Um, We've seen it a few times now in a few different adaptations, but I love it. Like, I can't get, like, I'm like, now if I ever get an adaptation done, I want someone to be reading something, you know, with my name on it. Like, I just think that's cool. It's a cool little shout out to the author. Love to see it here. Uh, I also like that it was this character that you would not expect to be reading a Saunders novel, uh, you know. Which is unfair, but you you kind of do, and uh, he's reading it, which is cool. The
1: that character too. Uh, another thing I wasn't like super stoked about was the the scene where they like had them together mm-hmm. in the room. Well, I, I guess it was good enough reveal, but they were really playing up the idea of like two men. Yeah. And, like, forcing, I mean, I guess non-consenting, to, like, you know, in a non-consenting way, that would be...
0: There was a little, you're
1: saying there was maybe, like, a little... Prison rape kind of, yeah, thing yeah, going on Yeah, they're kind of I joking wasn't... with that a little bit. Yeah.
0: That's true. And I felt like uh, the story didn't, like, very deliberately didn't do that. Right. Which, uh, you know, props to the story for that. Um, anyway, in the story, I also found a couple of Easter eggs. Well, at least one for sure. So, at one point, he says, uh, he, he uh, Jeff asks Abnesty something about if he's done for the day. And Amnesty says, uh, not yet. It is hours to go before you sleep. And I felt like that was, uh, pretty clearly a, a reference to Robert Frost. Uh, he has a poem where there's, it's miles to go before you sleep to me. Like that line is, it's constructed in a way that has to be a reference to Frost. And maybe that's just me being kind of like a word nerd, but like, I feel like, you know, you're in the New Yorker, you're throwing out a little reference. I bet other people have made that connection. Um, And then there was an interesting line where he says, I think it's Heather, gets up and starts dancing at one point before he's supposed to give her the darkened flocks at the end of the story. He says, why was she dancing? No reason. Just alive, I guess. I am 98% certain this exact line appears in one of the other stories I have read by George Saunders. So that wow. surprised me. I was like, this line, like, I know this line. Now, maybe it's possible I just saw it as a quote somewhere. That is possible. I couldn't find it. I looked it up on the internet, and I kept seeing references to this story. So maybe that's all it is. But I, if anybody else has read a lot of Saunders, like, write in and let me know. Is this line only in this story? Because I could have sworn this is a, he's, like, referencing a line in another story that he wrote and bringing it back, which I thought was, like, I'd never seen an author do that before. Not really. Um, that's cool I, yeah. it could, I like it potentially be cool right but, yeah I don't know I, I maybe I'm just wrong but yeah, I would love to know if anybody else noticed that and remembers that line in another story of his let me know
1: so I'm gonna read the last third here the I did want to mention the, just this connection here the writers Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick of this of the screenplay for this film um, are also known for Zombieland and both of the Deadpool films out. oh wow out. okay yeah, and this is R rated. Uh, the film that we, the Spiderhead, is an R rated film, and and it didn't feel R rated to me. Yeah, what wh- didn't go far enough, kind of. Yeah, it's way. like if yeah. you have
0: that R rating, I would have expected more of the, kind of the stuff I was talking about, like really getting into it, and like I thought like a lot of the violence was pretty mild. You know, it, it, there was like I guess some cursing, but not a ton. It felt very, it felt PG thirteen to me. I was surprised to see that R rating.
1: There's another sci-fi film that this film made me think of, and it's Ex Machina, in in a way that it's it's getting into a really heady sci-fi yeah. concept. Alex Garland. And it's isolated, <laughs> and you have a couple of characters, and they're playing off the like psychology of of like w- what can happen with technology. You and... have an eccentric billionaire, right? Yeah. Exactly. Oscar
0: Isaac nails that performance, by the way.
1: Right, and I don't think this movie is anywhere close to as good as as um as Ex Machina, but it, it did make me think of a like a film that sort of. Dives into the the theoretical, you know, psychological ramifications of of what the the sci-fi topic was a little a little better, and what I would have liked to have seen something more akin to with this film.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I can see that connection, and it's. I guess I would have hoped for something a little more like that, but with still that humor that's present, and that's so yeah.
1: tricky to do. When Oscar Isaac and and Chris Hemsworth are both dancing at some point. That's in a the good film. point.
0: I wonder if that was like a. You know, like, hey, I got I to dance, too, if Oscar Isaac gets to do it. <laughs> right.
1: When Steve asks Jeff to administer Dark and Phlox to Lizzie, Jeff takes control of Steve's Moby Pack, forcing him to admit the true goal of the program is to test a compliance drug, B6. The other drugs are merely a side project used to put B6 to the ultimate test, whether they would harm their love when commanded to. All the while, the inmates have been consenting to the various tests. They have really been under the influence of the obedience drug. With Mark and the police now approaching the island, Steve escapes on his plane as Jeff and Lizzie attempt to outrun their fellow inmates who have been ordered to catch them. High off of his damaged Moby Pack, Steve joyously crashes his plane into a mountain as Jeff and Lizzie motorboat away from Spiderhead. In a voiceover, Jeff comments that self-forgiveness has to be worked on and chosen.
0: So let's talk about the differences in the ending a little bit here. Um we get this confrontation between Steve and Jeff in the movie the the drugs are going going off cuz he hits he gets he smashes it in the fight these things are pretty easy to jostle it seems like in the movie <laughs> but um yeah he gets it messed up in the fight and like his drugs are going all over the place um i think right before that is when he looks at him and says drugs like this will prevent places like this
1: only you can prevent people like you. <laughs> Only you can prevent forest fires. I don't yeah <laughs> so I, I this this did make me think of, of my point before with Steve uh, like his his objectives being really weird and his his motives well the main thing that was sticking out to me was well how would what drug would you have used beforehand to stop someone from drunk driving? And killing, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, how did that? How, well, how do you make the connection that? Because he literally says to Jeff at one point, "Maybe if you had been on some of these drugs, you wouldn't have done this before. You wouldn't have done your awful thing." And I'm like, "How does that connect?" I don't i, I guess I just didn't really. I understand. mean,
0: I can imagine there could be like a impulse control kind of drug that maybe would prevent you from over drinking. Um, I guess I, I don't know, man. It, it
1: felt like a loose.
0: It's not a clear connective day. tissue, right? Yeah. Um, as to, whereas, like. In the story, he his rage took over and he killed somebody in rage, and we see that that is definitely an emotion that the drug seems to be able to control. Um, anyway, we get this fight, and then we get this escape, and I was a little surprised that our big man with the tattoos. By the way, that half skull tattoo with the dark eye, incredibly it's intimidating. Like that was a scary looking dude. Yeah. Um, very badass. I was surprised he didn't come back, and like he fights Shitfinger, which by the way we didn't talk about Shitfinger. What the hell was that about?
1: I don't know. It Again. seemed like
0: it was going to be somehow important. Like she was, like someone was writing messages, and I was like, "What are these messages? What is there going to be the reveal?" And instead, it was just this like weird joke. So I was surprised by that. We didn't see the big fight. I thought that we were going to maybe get uh, between the big dude <laughs> and them. It was all kind of surprising, and I feel like if you cast a giant buff Thor-looking Chris Hemsworth, you still have to kind of explain why he's so massive. I don't know. I thought maybe that was going to be the reveal is that he was dosing himself with some sort of strength enhancement thing that he's, like, working out and building up his physique, because that would also play into narcissism. So I feel like that could potentially work, but um, instead I think they were trying to pretend like he wasn't that strong. (laughs) But I'm like,
1: you can see his arms and see how fucking huge this guy is yeah I, I think i did my best to to sort of not engage with it and in, in terms of like him, him being super jacked just because i'm like I, I give him the benefit of the doubt like if he wants to play another role but he needs to say jacked for another role like yeah. whatever you know i try not to i just felt
0: like it was an easy thing they could have explained away
1: you're in a movie about drugs you could have just been like yeah he's dosing himself with something to build muscle i'm sure that he wouldn't have liked that as an maybe actor maybe not because then people are gonna be like he does cycle or something
0: that's true i guess there could be concerns like that but yeah barring that i i thought it was a missed opportunity um Anyway, yeah, so so they escape and he gets in the plane. The cops are all showing up with Mark, who has this change of heart when he talks to Jeff. It was a little easy to convince him, it felt like to me. Um I don't know. And and then and then I like I almost wanted to reveal that that Steve was actually making him forget and they had killed some other people in the past because I thought that memory thing was going to come back. I thought that's what we were alluding to. It just it there felt like there were these threads that were abandoned. And I'm wondering if, like, this movie got some rewrites or something to simplify it, because it felt too simple to me at, at the end. It felt like it, it it just was kind of in a hurry to finish and wasn't interested in, like, taking another step, another leap that it kind of needed to justify being a full-length film to me. So, I don't know. I'm kind of talking to myself into liking this movie less, but, like, Ultimately, I did have a good time with it, so it sounds like I'm like, really hating on it, but, like, I did have a pretty fun time with it. I'm just, like, I get frustrated sometimes when I feel like movies are close to being great. You know what I mean? Like, I love movies like this in general. Like, a cool sci-fi premise, it's kind of dark and twisted, and, like, there's the potential for, like, m- a bunch of mind fuckery going on and reveals. I love that shit. So I want this movie to be great, and I'm a little frustrated that, to me, it was just good. It was good.
1: Yeah, and I I feel very similarly. I, I just am like, yeah, it was it was a fun watch. Like I liked seeing these stars. We talked in another in a previous episode how it was like a 100 million dollar film and I think they spent it a lot on the cast obviously and the product the people involved. Why why spend that much? I, I don't know. And maybe it has something to do with the covid of it, it must. all like. That probably has that probably has part of it. It
0: probably infl- like it ballooned for some reason. They had to fly everybody out multiple times like they had to probably stop and start. You know, I would imagine something like that. And, happened. and the
1: film does look pretty good. I thought they did good with the graphics. It looks gra- pretty
0: good. It didn't look $100 million good, but it looks pretty I mean, Blade Runner 2049 was $100 million, right? Right. And that movie was fucking incredible looking.
1: That's the Deacon's effect, too. And, and obviously, Villeneuve. And like, the, the, you know, the, that's how you get a film that looks like that. For well, that and that's why blade.
0: money doesn't equal.
1: Good, right?
0: And and Holly, like more money does not equal better looking. It, like so much of it does come into the talent of the people making it and the the vision.
1: Right. And really, yeah, the vision and and, uh, like what kind of effort they're putting in, because this felt like people, you know, I felt like everybody put time into, but you can tell it's not their number one priority of the film that they've ever created, in my opinion. Kaczynski had Top Gun going on at the same time, probably in post at the same time. You know, Miles Teller also had that, plus other roles. Oh, that's right. Miles Teller is also in Top Gun, right? In Top Gun, exactly. So he's the connection to Kaczynski through that. And they were filming, they must have been filming this around the same time or like gone from one to the other, right? one to the other, something like that. Again, they were working on it all kind of at the same time, and it felt like something to do during yeah. COVID. Kind of a weird movie for
0: that reason, you know? Like, it it, it must have affected it in a lot of ways that, that uh, we can't see necessarily. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the way the story ends, though. So at the end of the story, we get uh, Jeff administering Darken flocks to himself because he reasons that if he is gone, then they won't be able to make him administer it to rachel i believe it is at this point
1: he he has been the person who's been analyzing a lot of the stuff and they've been they've been seeing it through his eyes when he would do these things so yeah if he's gone they would have to basically restart some of their testing and slow them down and specifically these people that he he it's not that he cares about these people like he loves them but he sort of cares of them this is like a basic human decency kind of deal exactly
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, I read something
0: about how Saunders, and I didn't include it in the bio because it's kind of um, big picture stuff that, I don't know, maybe I should have. Anyway, uh, when he was younger, he, like, considered himself an objectivist, a la, like, Ayn Rand and kind of, like, libertarian kind of deals. But as he got older, he shifted away from that. Now he views it um, negatively. And now he considers himself, like, more of a Buddhist. I was reading that he like studies a lot of Buddhism and um, the idea of just like loving everyone and like like uh, seeing value in life. I mean, and like in Buddhism, it goes beyond just people. It goes into like animals and insects and like everything. Um, I can see some of that messaging like you were talking about there. Um, which is interesting, you know, Buddhism is a fascinating thing that I have been doing some re- research into just out of curiosity. I, I like some of the philosophy behind it, whether or not I believe in the spiritual spirituality of it. But I, I like some of the philosophies there. I, it connect with me and resonate with me. But um, I wanted to read the actual final paragraph of the story because it's a, an interesting one. I think it stands apart from a lot of the, the style and maybe even tone that we have gotten throughout the rest of the story. So he's died and we get a sequence where he is a spirit floating above the spider head. And he sort of becomes all seeing and he can start to see like the mother of the boy he killed. He can see himself. He can see the director of Spiderhead. He can see Rachel. He in, he's like floating above it. He can see the gutters and he can see like leaves in the gutters and he can see his own transparent foot at one point. So it gets very like he's floating, right? And then here we go. From across the woods, as if by common accord, birds left their trees and darted upward. I joined them, flew among them. They did not recognize me as something apart from them, and I was happy, so happy, because for the first time in years and forevermore, I had not killed and never would. That's all one sentence. Um, with a bunch of these, like, clauses. Oh, no, sorry, it's two sentences, but still. Um, there's all, the, the final sentence is long, has a bunch of these, like, uh, commas and clauses, and it creates a kind of cl- complex sentence that I read a few times, right? Like, I, I went back and circled back and read it a few times. And he's flying as a spirit among the birds at the end of this story that's been all about, like, drugs and science and all this stuff. What did you take of? What did you take of
1: this ending? Like, did you actually like this ending in the story, or did it feel weird? So I, I did like the ending of the story because it got really weird, and and I'm into that kind of stuff usually. And it, it's, I mean, I, the the obvious sort of flying from the cage kind of metaphor of a bird leaving the prison is is sort of what I saw that as, like he's truly free now, like in, in a way that he couldn't be with all this other oversight and the drugs controlling his emotions and things like that. And yeah, like seeing it, seeing the mother of the person he killed and stuff is like sort of coming, like becoming one with all of that and, and coming to coming to terms with that. And I guess reconciling that. Um, I, I liked it. I I thought it was a weird way to end it. Like unexpected. I wouldn't have seen it coming, but, but I do think the, the fact that he kills himself uh, with the drug and everything like that was a way out. That was sort of his, him making a choice, that they couldn't stop you know what I mean that was that was his only thing that he could do to be truly have autonomy in that in that way
0: it's so interesting like I've read this I keep reading this thing and I keep coming back to it trying to figure out what exactly he's getting at because he joins okay so backing up a little bit there's a there's a sentence or two where he's talking about how the birds all like the nerve endings of the world react to the setting sun and they all cry out, and some of them have beautiful voices, and some of them are not beautiful. They're more like kakas, whatever, and and it's all due to like the the biology, the formation of their beaks and their chest and all this stuff. And so he's talking about like the way biology dictates our reality, and then how that all plays into our response to st- the stimuli of the world, right? Like nature versus nurture, but ultimately nature and nurture are out of our control. There's not a lot of, like, self there. And the idea of self is that, like, Randian-style philosophy champions so much, is that all an illusion? Are we all at the mercy of our biology and our upbringing? Is that truly what creates us? Um, I, I don't want to believe that fully, but, like, maybe maybe the the idea that it's anything but that is an illusion. I don't know. And philosophers have been debating this for a long time, right? We talk about free will or not. Um but then he, he joins the birds and they don't recognize him as something apart from them. So he is, he is natural in this state. And he's happy because for the first time in years and forevermore, I had not killed and never would. So he's talking about f- present and, for- and future. But in the present and in the future, he had not killed, which is the past, and forevermore never would. So it's like it's like the the reality of his past transgression is
1: erased in this moment. I think I think it's within his perception of that. Like, like he he, which is why I feel like he's reconciled with that that guilt that he has at least. Or and in and some he's way. only
0: able to do that because he's saved a life, perhaps. Like, a, like an equaling out of the scales because he saved Rachel in this moment?
1: Possibly, yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess that's what he's – something like that is what he's getting at. Anyway, this is a very profound you series of sentences for me. I kept reading them over and over again. Um, it felt like this is kind of what won over New Yorker. <laughs> I don't know. His style in general is great, so it, it probably a lot did. But this, this – I don't know. It felt like the right ending for the story to me. And that is very different than what we get in the movie. In the movie, we get uh, Hemsworth sort of uh, like Icarus flying towards the sun, ends up collapsing, weight of his own hubris. He's done this to himself in some sense, and he crashes, right? And then we get them leaving, and the whole lesson is sort of spelled out to us in, in voiceover. Not a big fan of, especially when it hasn't been really been present for the rest of the movie. Um, of him saying, like, I guess we just have to learn to forgive ourselves because we can't make ourselves forget. And I'm like, you can definitely be chemically made to forget. That is absolutely a thing that can happen. Um, I've chemically I was put in a chemical induced coma after my car accident and I forgot about 15 days of my life because of it. Um, that is something that can happen. So so it's interesting to me that the it's like, uh, you know, it's not really scientific, I guess. Um, but that sort of Pithy observation at the end wasn't nearly as profound as what we got
1: in the story, and so I guess that that to me made the movie end on a bit of a sour note. Yeah, I I agree. Like I said I said before, this the last little third or so, maybe a little less than that, sort of sent me down a path that I I wasn't expecting and and wasn't super satisfied with, but overall happy that I've seen it. Um, I do think this is a natural progression into our our uh, our choice here our votes that we need to take um comparing the source to the adaptation which do we prefer you want to start
0: yeah i mean i i actually had a great time watching this movie i know it sounds like i've been super critical of it um i do like the idea of like self-forgiveness and two people connecting who have both committed an unforgivable dereliction uh in a way i think both of them it's like they didn't purposefully kill it's manslaughter in both cases and they're able to connect over that, like, shared culpability and tragedy and find a way to forgive each other and themselves. I like that. Um, I thought at times Chris Hemsworth's performance was fun. I like seeing him try something very different than Thor, you know, uh, be kind of villainous. But also, I think he plays this sort of narcissist well who just wants people to like him. Um and, and like, I like the poetry in motion, you know, the Blinded by Science, like all these like 80s songs that we playing. I thought that was pretty fun. The movie has a like tongue-in-cheek, satirical tone to it a lot of the time. And when it's doing that well and it's working well, I'm having a great time. And I ultimately did like the movie a lot. Um, and like I said before, this story, like it wasn't my favorite Saunders piece I've read. But ultimately, it was very good. And it reminds me why I like him so much. And um, I'm a massive fan of Kurt Vonnegut, one of my favorite writers of all time. And the idea that George Saunders is sort of writing in that same space and he's considered kind of a modern Vonnegut. I like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in for it. So ultimately, I'm going to give it to the story. Um, and uh, but you can read it in a lot shorter time. So if you're going to experience one or the other and you can't do both,
1: read the story. I really like the, that Vonnegut comparison. I will have to read more Saunders before I can really comment on it. I also similarly like the film. I enjoyed it. I think that I would appreciate it more if I hadn't read this short. Interesting, story. yeah. So unfortunate when that happens.
0: It, it it's it usually it doesn't. It's not for
1: better or for worse. I think it's just like that's that's the nature of like how we approached it. So I I think if I just caught this on Netflix randomly like most people will, I'd probably enjoy it for what it is. Um and be like, oh yeah, it's pretty good. And would, that's kinda how I feel about it overall. Um, I like that it's like a pandemic film. I like that it's small scale, and they were able to to pull off sort of the premise, in a way, or at least explored the idea of drug trials in this in this MK Ultra kind of way. But yeah, the the, the story had so much more for me to sink my teeth into. It was more shocking, more like something. It, it felt like really uh, fresh. You know, it felt like something I hadn't read a lot of, and. You know, like you said, if if Saunders is a modern Vonnegut, it's definitely somebody I'm going to be reading a lot more of because I definitely like that style. Yeah,
0: just real quick. He also breaks two rules that you will hear a lot in writing in this one story alone. He begins with dialogue, which a lot of people say you should never do. Uh, He also ends with the character, the main character committing suicide, which a lot of people say you should never do. (laughs) Wow, yeah, interesting. because uh, it's considered just kind of a cliche. It's been done too many times, but he finds a way to, I think, to make it fresh and interesting. I, I prefer that ending to what we got in the movie, ultimately. Um, all right, but it does sound like both of us prefer this story to the movie, although we both had a good time with the movie, I think it's safe to say. All right, so uh, we are going to be off next week. Uh, we're both uh, doing a little bit of vacationing. I'm going camping. I think you're you're traveling somewhere. Um So we'll be releasing one of our former Patreon exclusives uh, to the main feed from probably a couple years ago. Um, And then we'll be back and we'll be tackling another brand new movie and short story combo that we will announce at the very end here in a moment.
1: So stick around. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. So if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of rating or review wherever you're listening on, you know. Apple, I think you can do it now on Spotify. Wherever you're listening, please leave us a rating and review. It helps to get the word out there and, you know, continue getting new listeners. Yeah, and I love seeing them. Come on, make my day. I want to see more of them.
0: Um, also, follow us on social media. We are at InktoFilm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, love for you to connect with us on there. We use each platform in a slightly different way. Um, and, uh, you know, we even have these little short videos now on TikTok. So check them out and see what we got going on there.
1: And if you'd like to support the podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different tiers, but at just $2 a month, you get our bonus content, which we'll be recording here shortly and, and releasing a new one. on. Yeah. And if you wanted to get like a mug too, we also have a tier where you can get that. So check it out. And it's also got a different uh,
0: cool artwork that we had commissioned from our, our like main logo. It looks really neat. So Patreon
1: exclusive. Yeah. Patreon. You can only get it there. Yeah.
0: Check it out. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, let's announce our next week's uh, project. I I kind of tipped my hand a little bit here. You might have predicted what it's going to be if you know what's coming out. Uh, We got a Joe Hill, son of Stephen King, short story called The Black Phone that is being adapted into a film that looks creepy and exciting and uh, we're going to be talking about that one in a couple
1: weeks' time. Yeah, I'm excited. Sinister uh, director Scott Derrickson, if you've seen oh, Sinister, no, or Doctor Strange, the original Doctor Strange, he also directed that. So. Oh, I have seen that. Yeah, so it'll be fun to jump into uh, Black Panther. No, it's got Ethan Hawke in it, I think. Yeah, love Ethan Hawke.
0: Yeah, he's good. Anyway, yeah, that should be fun. So uh, we hopefully you you rejoin us in two weeks, and if you're not a patron, then you'll be able to see next week uh, the kind of stuff that we offer over on there when we release an episode in the main feed. So stay tuned for that, and until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.